Hey everyone, this is Cody, and you are listening to Tent Talks. In this episode, I speak with my brother Brad Turner about a variety of different topics. We discuss the purpose of life, the question of whether there's an afterlife, the existence or non-existence of God, the nature of consciousness and the nature of the self, and we spend a lot of time discussing Buddhism. As you'll hear, Birad is extremely steeped in Buddhism. He's been on multiple meditation retreats. He meditates for at least a few hours each day, I believe. And he's just generally speaking an avid scholar of Buddhism. And a lot of this conversation involves us hashing out our various agreements and disagreements over different tenets of Buddhism, specifically the tenet of rebirth that's promoted by at least some strands of Buddhism. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. One thing that I think is really fascinating about Buddhism is the fact that it differs from other traditional religions in that it has an anti-annihilationist component to it, but it doesn't necessarily posit the existence of a supreme god or a deity. And I feel like that distinction isn't often made, or I haven't really seen it made. You know, I guess I guess people who study Buddhism might worship the Buddha in some sense, but correct me if I'm mistaken, they don't attribute any divine qualities to the Buddha, right? The Buddha was just a human being who happened to become enlightened. So there isn't that deity aspect, but there is the anti-annihilationist aspect. There is the idea that that this life isn't your only life and that death isn't synonymous with just the complete annihilation of your existence, right? Because the Buddhists believe in rebirth and karma and, and these things. So you, like other religions, it has this kind of eternalist aspect to it, but without the deification. Is that right? Yeah. A few things there. Um, you, you do see that in temples and monasteries of, you know, monks, even lay people like bowing to a statue of the Buddha. Right. And it seems very, uh, very similar to other rites and rituals of other religious traditions. But you kind of actually hit on a good point there. <clears throat> They're not bowing to the person of the Buddha, right? It's it's not like it's not like the Buddha, like like it's some worshipped god, like like you see sometimes in other traditions. But as you mentioned, it's actually the qualities of the Buddha that they are in a sense, bowing to, they're, they're aspiring to, right? So you'll see, like, I think in, uh, like, the Thai forest tradition in Thailand, um, they bow three times whenever they walk into the sala or the meditation hall in a monastery. And uh, they're bowing to the quality of virtue, the quality of peace, the quality of wisdom, right? Because these are qualities the Buddha held, and these are qualities that, um, an aspirant is is looking to um, cultivate and and have as their fundamental nature. 
Um, but one thing that's also important to understand is the the Buddha nature, as it's sometimes called, is is in all of us, right? So we all have the capability to awaken. We all have the capability to be a Buddha in a sense, right? It's 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 kind of like it's basically perfection of the human being, and uh, so it's really it's really just an admiration and a respect and a and a um, a reminder uh, of what they are hoping to um, become more and more immersed in through their practice. Um, as to your other question with uh, internalism and uh, the belief in some external entity as the supreme ruler of the existence. Yeah. And, and we're going right into it right now. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> no warm up. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, the problem with, you know, if you say there is an external entity that created the universe, right? Well then what created the external entity, right? It's just, it's just, and this is what you see. It's just right. The turtles all the way down metaphor. It's, you can never get to it. Right. So, and that's one thing the Buddha actually said, because there are some questions he didn't answer. Um, such as like, how is the universe eternal? Is the universe not eternal? Is there a beginning? And like you said many times, like the, it's, it's indiscernible. It's beginningless. You, you can't discern a beginning. It's, there's one metaphor he uh, came up with where it's like, I mean, it's a- aeons and aeons and aeons old. And like an aeon, if you have in a sense of what an aeon is, it's like if you have a mountain and you have like a hawk go by with a little silk and every hundred years he goes by to the top of the mountain and runs that silk along the top. Well, that mountain eventually will be totally depleted. There will still be time left in one aeon left before, even after that. happens. so it's, it's just unfathomable. You can't think about that. So, yeah, can I just quickly say that for some of the reasons I think that you just cited, I'm de- I'm definitely agnostic when it comes to the existence of a creator of the universe or a deity. You know, I'm not a a theist in that sense, but I'm also not a raving atheist either because I just feel like when you start to think about the different possibilities as to how existence could have come into being, each one seems extremely counterintuitive. Right? Like okay, maybe there's just always existence ad infinitum. That seems kind of weird, right? Or maybe at some point, the big, the big Bang just exploded out of nothing. So you just have something coming into existence out of nothing randomly with no cause. That seems extremely weird as well, right? So then if you're... So then there's, a, there's, yeah, there's the infinite causal chain back. There's something coming out of nothing with no explanation. And then there's the idea that some deity created the universe, but then what created the deity? Did the deity create itself? Do we have to invoke some kind of notion of self-causation here? That seems really weird as well. So I feel like when you start thinking about first principles and you start contemplating the question as to why there's something rather than nothing, all of the possible answers to that question seem extremely counterintuitive. So if you're going to tell me that, yes, there is a creator, 
that seems just as likely um, as the idea that there's not a creator, you know? So I'm open to the idea that there could be a creator. It's just, I don't know what the nature of this creator is, right? There's one thing, it's, it's one thing to be open to the existence of the creator. It's the other thing to allege that you know what the nature of this creator is, right? This creator, for example, manifests itself as the Christian God or as the Islamic God, right? I just feel like when you start having those questions, I don't think we can know that, you know, but in any event, my, my main point is that, yeah, I just think that because of the uncanniness of all the possible options of existence, I'm open to both theism and atheism and I'm not overly committed to either. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. This is one thing we have to understand from the Buddhist view is we're our default view of things, of life, of everything is diluted already, right? So our, our normal state of consciousness, our normal state of being is delusion as it is. So we think, for instance, that, and we've talked about this before, right, that there is some permanent entity, some permanent ego that is us, that is in control of the body, that's riding around behind our eyes, in between our ears, and uh, is calling all the shots and is in control of everything, right? Well, I mean, even if you haven't really fundamentally realized that in a way that kind of uproots that personality view, it I think most people would agree are very well aware that, yeah, that's, 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 that's definitely a delusion. That's definitely not what's going on. Right. The way this hair is growing, the way my blood's flowing, my heart's beating, the ego is not doing any of that. Right. But that's happening. And that's, that's in a sense, you as this whole organism. So we already think that, there is some kind of entity in control of what's going on within ourselves, right? So we take that same delusion and now we put that into the universe as a whole with a God, right? Mm. In the same way as if there's some external entity ruling the God, because that's all we know. That's already our, our uh, deluded mind within our everyday experience thinks that. So we can't comprehend that not being the case in any other scenario, because that's what we think is already going on. So the thing is, when you realize that that's not the case, when you really realize that there is no ego, it's a concept, it's a symbol for yourself, it's everything that's going on is happening from causes and conditions, right? Everything that you are, certain thoughts that come up, they're coming up because they've been, they've been conditioned by your habitual tendencies, by by things that you've done, by, by things that you're doing currently. And that's why they're coming up, right? Just as when you stop doing those things, those same thoughts don't come up. So, so you see right now in this everyday present moment that, uh, everything is arising. Everything that's happening is being conditioned based off what you're doing now. So if you take that same notion and you bring that to the universe, right? Cause in a sense, we are a small part of the same law of nature, the same law that's going on. The universe itself is that same way. It doesn't need an ego or some God that's doing mm -hmm. all this based off these same laws of cause and effect of conditions, right? So this is arising from this and that's arising from that and that's arising from that. And um, it's what 
can be called dependent origination in Buddhism. But uh, so that's the whole idea is everything in the universe is a verb. There is no noun, right? Mm. It's a, it's kind of a grammatical thing that we have that every verb needs to be started with a noun, but that's, that's, that, that doesn't applicate to the nature of existence and, and the universe. That's, if you really think about that, it doesn't even make sense. How does a thing, how does a thing start a verb? It doesn't even make sense. Thing is just a thing. It can't start a verb. So the whole thing is everything in the universe is an, is an event, is, is a verb. There is no thing in the universe. There is no solid, stable. Everything is just based off conditionality and causality. And it's just constantly changing and going and going and going an indiscernible amount and there isn't there is no thing running the show in a sense it's running itself so so this is fundamentally the buddhist view on the universe and 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 to go just a step further when you're talking about rebirth and all that you know when you realize that that's what's happening in this moment right now you're actually being reborn every moment every moment is just a bunch of changing experiences over and over and over rebirth doesn't seem that crazy anymore once you're you know from the deluded egotistical mind you thinking yes there's someone running the show this will die obviously there's nothing after that rebirth seems like some crazy thing but when you realize that oh no everything that you are is conditioned from that is conditioned from that is conditioned from that based on what i'm doing and that's what's going on in the future and everything in the universe Uh is going on like that too it makes sense that this same law that's going on right now and has been going on is going to continue going on if those conditions and those causalities are still there in place. So in Buddhism, we're trying to get rid of those causes. We're trying to get rid of that conditionality for existence because from the Buddhist perspective, existence is the problem. And that's why uh, in Buddhism, the goal is to get out of these rounds of rebirth. And Right. Okay. Hold on. Let me stop you. You're, you're throwing a lot at me right now. Yeah, I know. I know. I just wanted to <laughs> Before you get too a little, a little, a little just, you know, overview. All right. First of all, I like the analogy that you make between h- how we falsely posit the existence of an ego and how that human tendency actually is reflected in us potentially falsely positing the existence of a God, right? It seems like there's kind of like a natural human tendency to look for permanence or to advocate for some unifying principle, right? Or to look for some sort of stability, Right. We, we don't want to grapple with the fact that everything is constantly flowing and changing and washing away. We don't want to grapple with the fact that everything might just be in a state of, you know, chaos in some sense. So uh, humans have this natural tendency to feel as if they're a self, an ego. And maybe we should define more clearly what we mean by ego here, right? Just the sense that there's kind of a a subject of experience riding around in your head, right? This kind of permanent uh, subject that's riding around in your head. Yeah, we might falsely posit the existence of that. And that same human tendency, which leads us to do that, might lead us to falsely posit the existence of a God, kind of ego of the universe, if you will. And you're saying that in both of these cases, these are just false posits. So I thought that was really interesting. I do think that just because something is true about the human mind doesn't mean that it's necessarily true about the universe. And I think this gets to 
a larger disagreement that you and I have on these points, right? Just because the human mind might be structured in one way, it might be egoless, doesn't mean that the universe is necessarily egoless. Maybe there is a God. Then the other thing, uh, this concept of rebirth that you invoked, I feel like just for anyone who might be listening, it's helpful to define what you mean here. So my understanding is that when Buddhists talk about rebirth, this goes along with the anti-annihilationist stuff that we are talking about, right? The idea of rebirth means that when you die, right, when you get to the end of your natural life cycle here, it's not just oblivion. It's not just nothingness. The Buddhists think that you get reincarnated or reborn into another life cycle, right? And the point that you were making there, if I understood you correctly, was this idea, this anti-annihilationist idea of rebirth, isn't that hard to digest once you consider the fact that we're being reborn in every single moment? If we're being reborn in every single moment in this life, then it's not that much of a jump to think that we might be reborn the moment after we die. Is that right? Yeah. You can think of it as a, just a more dramatic transition. So yeah, I get what you're saying. I get your justification for why rebirth might be a palatable idea insofar as you think we're being reborn in every single moment because the self doesn't exist. So there is no stable self that's carried through in each moment, right? If there was an ego, if there was a stable self that was carried through in each moment, then the whole idea of being reborn in each moment doesn't really make sense. So I, I get your line of reasoning, but I think that this gets at the larger difference that you and I have when it comes to Buddhism, right? Like I'm just unwilling to drink all the Buddhist Kool-Aid when it comes to endorsing a lot of the, I guess you could say metaphysical or religious aspects of Buddhism, right? The idea, the anti-annihilationism, the idea of rebirth, the idea of karma, these things I'm completely agnostic about. I'm not saying that they're not true, right? Maybe it is true that some sort of reincarnation is the case and we get reborn into different life cycles, but I just don't see any evidence for that. But that being said, I think that everything that Buddhism has to say about the nature of the mind, insofar as I understand it, strikes me as correct, right? The idea that the self and the ego is an illusion and the idea that most of human suffering in life is born out of the fact that we're constantly identifying with thought, right? And we're constantly attaching ourselves to things in the world, whether it's thoughts, whether it's conceptions of ourselves, whether it's material goods, we're constantly attaching ourselves to these things, which inevitably wash away, right? Which are inevitably transient. And that most human suffering is born out of those attachments, right? And one of those, one of the biggest attachments, again, being identifying with thought and just believing whatever thought happens to come caroling, happens to come barreling into consciousness. Right. So, yeah, I think that once you realize that the ego doesn't really exist and that thoughts are just that all there really is ultimately from a phenomenological point of view is consciousness. Right. And sensations arising in consciousness. I forget who gave this metaphor, but someone gave the metaphor of, you know, once you break through the dualistic frame, the subject object way of framing the structure of consciousness, right? The idea that the, I'm the subject and then there's the objects of consciousness. Once you break through that dualism and you inhabit a kind of non-dualistic view of consciousness, you realize that all sensations are on par with one another, 
right? If I hear the sound of a car out there on a dualistic frame, I tend to think that, okay, that's the car out there. Whereas if I have a sensation, a thought arising in my mind, I, I tend to think that that's happening in here in my mind, right? But again, once you break through that dualistic frame, you realize that, that the thought is just as much out there as it is in here. And the sound of the car is just as much in here as it is out there, right? There is really no principled barrier which separates these two different sensations. They're all arising in the same place. They're all arising in consciousness. And again, once you realize that, it's easier to not suffer as much because it's easier not to attach yourself to any given thought or train of thoughts, right? So I'm, I'm getting carried away, but yeah, my point is all of these insights about the nature of the mind, I feel like are extremely crucial to understand if you want to live a life which is conducive to fl flourishing and well-being. But I don't think that those insights about the nature of the mind necessarily entail any of these other Buddhist insights about the nature of reality, right? Again, insights like karma and rebirth. So that's where I get off the train. I get off the Buddhist train when you start talking about the afterlife and things like this. This, my friend, is huge. And you don't know it, but you actually just contradicted yourself. I'm going to tell you why. Did I? The first, the first part, and this is huge, this non-dualistic view that you're talking about. Right? This is what we have to understand. The external world, right? Mm -hmm. Actually is all internal. Because think about it, the only way we view, the, the only way we, we experience the external world is through seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, and uh, smelling. That's it. That's it, right? Five senses. But let's take seeing, for instance, right? Say we see a tree, right? We see a tree out there. We don't actually see the tree. We don't actually see a tree. We, we see light. And the light in, in your brain internally turns that light into the image of a tree, right? So there is no tree out there. The tree is being converted into that from the light internally. So your whole experience of the external world happens internally. It's already altered. That's not actually what it is. It's, 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 it's being altered internally. This mm -hmm. is with all the other senses. So yeah. you're, not actually, you're not actually seeing the world as it is. You realize that. You're, you're, you're seeing the world. It's, it's, it's all an internal experience of the external world. Wait, okay, let me just, uh, I don't want to... This is huge, yeah. Okay, I don't want to stop your train of thought. I just wanted to say, as a caveat, I know there are there is a position in the philosophy of perception called naive realism, which actually rejects that idea and which says that we do see the world directly as it is. It's, it's called, I won't get into it, but naive realism, it's a form of direct realism about perception. These kinds of views about perception, I don't think are, I don't think that they're the most popular views about perception, but there are some 
philosophers that definitely endorse them. But gen- but I, generally speaking, I would agree with what you're saying thus far, that the, the sensations that we experience are taking place completely in our mind and and they ultimately represent different features of the external world, right? So direct uh, theories of direct perception or naive realism can be contrasted with kind of like representational views of perception, which is the kind of view perception that I think you're advocating here. So, right. Yeah. Right. We're not seeing the world objectively. We're seeing the world as a, um, as a human being, it's an internal experience. Really. If you take water, water for a fish and water for, you know, a, a, a bird, it, it's two completely different things. You know, if you put a bird under the water, I mean, so it's, it's the same thing is, is different based off that. So that's just, a, I'm just saying there, there is no objective world. That's the same for all things, but this is huge. This is huge. The way you're getting, well, well, hold on, hold on. There is an objective world. That's the same for all things, but all things don't perceive that objective world the same way. Right, but that but that perception is is already a completely different world because it, it's it's the world in itself. Like I said, it's all an internal experience through the senses, through the five senses. So it's mm-hmm. not, it's not like out there; it's in here. That's how you, that's how you know it, and that's not really what it is because it's already being altered based off your internal processes, and the internal processes for different things are different. But anyway, anyway, this isn't the important part. The important part is the fact that, especially when you're talking about the nature of the mind, bro. Mm-hmm. If we're if we're already seeing the world uh, altered, right? And and, and, we, and we we already know that this world is actually all experienced internally. Really, the external world is really experienced internally. Um, the nature of the mind and the nature of the world are really the same thing because the external world is only known through that mind. It's, it's an, it's, it's an, it's only, it's only experienced through these senses that are internal. So it's an extension of it's, there is no, uh, it's the same nature. It's this, it's a manifestation of the same thing. So this is just my point with your, you believe in the nature of the mind, but not the nature of the external reality. What, what I'm saying is once you understand that the external reality is an extension of already the nature of your mind, then you could see how like some of the difficulties you're having in understanding is uh, counterintuitive because you're agreeing with the nature of this, but you're not agreeing with the nature of that. But so you're you're already assuming that that is different from that. And what I'm trying to show you is no, it's what the external world is is already from the mind, and it's all experienced from the mind internally, and that's why this boundary between the internal and external doesn't actually exist. That's why this non-dualistic aspect doesn't exist. Are you kind of following me with that? I think, but I'm a bit confused because it seems like the kind of idea that you're promulgating here, that the nature of the external world is just, a, is just a, 
an extension of the nature of the mind. That seems to align. Yeah, hold on. That seems to align more closely with like a naive realist conception of perception, like where where we literally just are perceiving the world as it is, right? It's not like we're it's not like we're having this inner realm of sensation which these kind of sense images in our mind would stand in between us and the world, right? That's kind of, again, that goes along with the representationalist theory of perception where, where the conscious properties in my mind represent features of the outside world, but they, it's not like the features of the outside world are directly there presented to me, right? That's a theory of direct perception. So what I'm trying to say is the idea that you're saying that the external world just is the internal world, that seems to more closely aligned with naive realism, but it sounds like you're advocating for not naive realism, but again, a kind of indirect theory of perception, a representationalist theory of perception. And on that kind of theory of perception, I see no reason whatsoever to endorse the kind of claim that you're making, right? Like, in other words, on a representationalist theory of perception, it's not necessarily true at all that what's true about my mind is true about the external world. Like, for example, it could be that colors as we understand them like uh and when i say colors i mean what philosophers call like edonic colors so i'm not talking about like the physical understanding of a color as like a as being a particular wavelength but the actual sensation of seeing red like that sensation of redness that's what i'm talking about on a representationalist theory of perception that might exist if i'm looking at at a tomato the tomato is red insofar as i experience it but objectively in the absence of any experience color in the adonic sense, might not actually exist. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but so, but in my mind, it does. Right. That adonic redness exists. The sensation of redness. Right. But in the, in the external world, it might not exist. Redness in the external world might only exist in the sense of, you know, in the physical understanding of colors as being a particular wavelength. Like that particular wavelength of light exists in the external world, independent of my mind. But the actual sensation of redness need not exist in the external world, independent of my mind. So my mind, exactly. what's true about my mind is different than what's true about the external world, right? Exactly. We're not seeing the world as it is. It's already distorted. That's exactly my point. Same thing with sound. Same thing with sound. There's no sound out there. Your ear converts it to sound. There's just vibrations, right? There's just vibrations. So the whole the whole world as we know it is actually just an internal experience. That's not actually what's going on. I know, but doesn't this, con- but okay, doesn't that contradict your idea that we can, we can derive truths about the external world just by, via introspection into our mind? Like the external world really is different than our mind in this way that you're admitting. And it seems like in order to know what the external world is like, we can't just look into our minds via introspection. We have to engage in science and third person investigations. No. Because you just pointed out a huge thing, the knowing, the knowing of the world. How do you identify the knowing, right? You can't, you can't measure that with science. Science, you, you can't, it doesn't have a feature. So this actually leads us to a big part of uh, your definition of existence, right? And the difference between existence and what, reality is so in, in buddhism they they have a 
they call it the three marks of existence. Existence in itself has three characteristics. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Otherwise known as uh, impermanent. Anicca. Dukkha, which I usually just like leaving it that word because there's really no good word for that in English at all. It's commonly translated as suffering, but it's really much more than that. It's you know, stress, dissatisfaction, discontentment, boredom, restlessness, unreliable, it's sometimes translated as. So I just like leaving it as dukkha. And uh, anatta, which is um, selflessness, non-self, uh, insubstantiality. Um, so these are the three marks of existence. Now, really, if you just see one, you see the other three, right? So if you see a sensation that's impermanent, you see that, oh, right there, it can't be satisfying by the mere fact that it's impermanent, by the mere fact that it passes away. Mm-hmm. And you could also see it's not myself. How could it be myself? It's already gone, right? It doesn't last long enough. So, right. you know, so it's really, it, it's, it's, all, it's all really one and the same thing. But so we could say existence in itself is marked by change, is marked by impermanence. That is what defines us the characteristic of existence, right? And, and that's why Buddhists say that existence is the problem? Yeah, I'm going to get into that. So reality, right? Reality is something that is, it doesn't, it's not impermanent. Reality isn't impermanent, right? The mark of reality is permanent. So you got to understand there's a difference between reality and existence. And this is a, uh, I mean, this is just so, this is huge in really understanding. Um, and you can't really understand it until certain levels, but it gives you sort of an idea because there's a lot of uh, different conceptual frameworks and different traditions, and it really gets confusing if you're just looking at it at that level. But this is from the Thai forest tradition, and I, I find that it's a really good distinction because, so reality, which is marked by permanence, that's what's real, right? Something that's real. Existence isn't real. It doesn't lie. It doesn't lie. How could something that rises, changes, and passes away? That, there's nothing real about that, right? So, existence is the external world, is the five aggregates, which is us, which is, uh, that that isn't reality. So in Buddhism, the goal is to try to understand and see reality. What so, go ahead. I was just going to ask. I'm trying to understand this distinction. But so, if reality is permanence and everything in existence is temporary, right? And what's real? Is anything? How can anything be real then? So there's different. Yeah, exactly. In a sense, nothing, nothing that exists is real. But what, what's the thing that knows existence, right? This, you sometimes hear it's called the one who knows, right? But it's not a thing. It's not, it's not a thing. You can't, you can't point to it. There is no uh, description or characteristic of it. But there's a knowing of existence, there's something that knows existence. There's something that knows arising and passing away. There's something that knows all of this. 
And that, that's something that doesn't arise and pass away. That's just a knowing. It's not a thing. You can't point to it. You can't and that's, not, that's not the ego, to be clear. That's not the ego. Yeah. The ego is mental formations, volitional formations, mem- uh, memories, emotions. Right. These things all arise and cease. That's like a psychologically emergent phenomenon. You're talking about like consciousness itself or something like that the, as, as the knower? Yeah. I mean, it's a t- I don't like using the word consciousness because it gets confusing. Because one of the five aggregates, which is what makes a human being, uh, rupa, uh, sana, vidana, um, uh, sankara, and uh, vinana. So that's form material body which is really just the four elements of air water heat and uh, earth that's all the body is that's the body right and then the other four are all the mental ones um so you got sana which is memory you got sankara which is volitional formations motions thoughts stuff like that mm-hmm. um, you got vidana which is feeling pleasant unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant and then you got um uh, vinana which is consciousness okay right okay so we've talked about this before but yeah and this can get confusing i've been but from what i understand from my understanding thus far and again you know uh things change but that consciousness they're talking about sense consciousness in particular right so the five senses and actually the six senses including the mind so like when you're when you hear sound Boom. There's a consciousness of sound, right? That's what they're talking about. Uh, seeing, boom, you see, that's seeing consciousness, right? So these are different consciousnesses. These are things that arise and cease, and they're conditioned by the eye and by the contact of the light. Boom. That seeing consciousness arises, right? So that's what they're talking about. Those things arise and cease. But, but who's the one that knows seeing consciousness? Who's the one that knows these different consciousnesses, right? So that's the thing. And in some traditions, they call it uh, the primordial awareness. Um, sometimes it's called the chitta, C-I-T-T-A. Really just the one who knows, the knowingness nature of the mind, right? And this is, uh, this fundamentally is, you could say reality. It's, it's, and it, but it's not a thing. You can't, re- it's hard to describe it because it's not really, a thing to describe it's just but there is a knowingness nature to it and so it's like knowing when consciousness isn't there you know when consciousness is there you know when consciousness isn't there and uh you can get to this experientially at very high levels of meditation uh high levels of samadhi one point in this of mind the jhanas you get to a point where all the you 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 get so concentrated that all the five senses, the entire world disappears, and there's just a non-dualistic experience. There's just knowingness. There is no thing to be known. There's just knowingness. Complete peace. And it's said that this is a preview to Nibbana, right? Nothing's arising and passing. It's just complete peace. And it's it's that's nirvana. It's not nirvana. It's not nirvana. Okay. Because it's conditioned. But they say that 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 sense of uh, peace and bliss and, and just and that non-dualistic knowingness is a is kind of a preview of what it's like. 
So even before you get there, you can actually experience this through a lot of effort and a lot of skill and a lot of purification of mind to get to that point. But uh, that knowingness is something that's outside of the five aggregates. And that knowingness is something that's outside of existence. It doesn't exist, but it's real. And then it's fundamentally important. So, yeah, a few things. I don't want to get bogged down talking about the five aggregates, but the way that you presented the five aggregates uh, betrays the conceptual framework that I tend to operate with when thinking about consciousness, right? So you presented consciousness alongside other aggregates, which constitute the human, right? Feelings. I think you said memory. I think there are some others. I usually think of consciousness as being the place in which feelings and memories manifest themselves. So consciousness as the way I tend to think of it, isn't something alongside memory or feeling consciousness just is the fundamental space in which all other sensations arise. Right. So I think it's, for me, you should conceptualize it as being more fundamental than those other aggregates. And then you also talked about how there are different types of consciousness, which the way you're talking seem to suggest that they're not necessarily like unified together, right? There's like a seeing consciousness. There's a hearing consciousness, Again, the way that, and maybe I'm wrong about this, maybe you're, you have the correct conceptual framework here, but the way that I tend to think about this is there aren't different kinds of consciousness. Again, there's just one consciousness. Yes. And there are different, there are different sensations, physical sensations arising within that one consciousness. Now, these different sensations are different, right? Because they're accessed via different sensory modalities, right? Hearing is a different sensation than touching and tasting and so on and so forth. But these aren't different kinds of consciousness. They're just different sensations arising within the one consciousness that exists. I don't know if that way of framing things has any bearing on the conclusion that you're drawing here about reality. But I I just want to say that I I tend to think about consciousness and its relation to sensations in in a bit of a different way. No, you're you're basically right, and this is why it's really just a conceptual uh, uh, misunderstanding here. And it's you know we're playing we're playing this deep game at a very surface level air arena, and uh, a lot of misunderstandings arise because of that. Um, but you're right, the seeing consciousness and the hearing consciousness it's just a different manifestation of consciousness. You're right, like that is what it is, but the point I was trying to make was, and I just don't like using that word consciousness because it gets conflicting because it's only the way I see it from, from my understanding, this is my understanding mm-hmm. uh, is it's almost like you could, you could call it pure consciousness. I like just calling it the one who knows, but I think we're talking about the same thing here. Things that are rising in what knows those things. I think the one who knows is what you're referring to as consciousness this is why I think it's just a conceptual thing. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, we're just, we're playing different language games. and Right. So that pure consciousness is now like being manifested to the six senses, right? And the, and the consciousness of those six senses are the things that are impermanent. But there, it, the, conscious, the, the pure consciousness, the one who knows, doesn't need to actually do that, doesn't need those things to exist on its own. So it's like, it's like it's going out to the senses. Uh-huh. And when it manifests at those senses, that's when those consciousnesses are impermanent. 
you know, to make those things known, but it doesn't have to do that. And, and from my understanding, that pure consciousness, that one who knows is something that doesn't need a body. It doesn't need the six senses. It doesn't need existence. And I, th- I think, I think that is, okay. Uh, my view and it's just a difference in conceptual language that can really get confusing but i see what you're saying yeah so so nirvana yeah. or the, the the precondition to nirvana that you're just talking about it involves just that pure consciousness in the absence of any sensory contents right you've completely yes you've you've completely detached detached yourself from all these sensory contents and i guess that's why that would so that am i right in thinking that's why buddhists think that you can survive the death of your body because even without those sensory inputs that your body provides that pure consciousness that knower whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. that can survive in the absence of being embodied right that can survive in the absence of any sensory stimulation right right so okay i understand all that i don't know if i agree with it um but it makes sense to me right but, but, but can you see, though, um, how existence then is actually the problem from a Buddhist standpoint, if, if you are adopting that? I think, I mean, I get what you say when you say existence is the problem. Existence is the problem because existence refers to things that are inherently temporary, that are just constantly arising Change. and passing away. And by attaching with these things that are inherently temporary, we inevitably suffer when they, when they wash away. So it, is it, it's the problem in that sense where existence is the source of suffering. Yeah, man. It, and it, it just makes sense then how letting go is uh, the answer to escape. Because like, you know, there is some gratification. There's no denying that to the senses originally. Yeah. But like the more, the more like the more aware you become of how these things of your experience of them, like you really realize how anything that arises is actually suffering. And like, it's, it's, it's hard to like convince somebody that until they start like pressing way of putting it. Cause like, okay, if it's unpleasant, I mean, that's obvious for people, right? But the pleasant too is suffering. And like, there's multiple reasons for that. You know, obviously the one we talked about where you become attached to it or you grasp at it and then it goes away and it's like grasping at air. And now you're, you know, you're in grief. That's one way. That's one way. But it actually arising itself is suffering as well because you're, uh, it's disturbing the mind. Any, any sensation that arises is a disturbance to your peace, even if it's pleasant. Okay. And that's why Nibbana is so blissful. It's blissful because someone asked, they're like, how can Nibbana be blissful if there's no sensation? And the, the monk was like, he just, he's like, my friend, my friend. Nibbana is so peaceful for the very fact that there is no sensation. And the Buddha had something called the fire sermon where he said, every sensation's like on fire. It's like, it's like a little fire always going on. It's disturbing the mind. Um, and again, w- what goes up must come down, right? So even these pleasant experiences that you have in life, it's always followed by the unpleasant, whether you're aware of it or not. And, right. it, and it's, so you can't get one without the other 
So even if you go for the pleasant, you're just getting unpleasant. And the unpleasant is, is, is much, much more than the pleasant. There, there's actually, a, sorry, I'm just, there's actually another simile of it. It's like, it's like, it's like someone who, oh, I, 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 have a, I have a great illustration here of the human experience from the Buddhist view. But, I mean, okay, basically, I'll, I'll just do a little snippet of it. I mean, they, you could say it's like you're on a, uh, it's, it's like you're grabbing hold of a bee's nest to get a little taste of honey. Yeah. But you're constantly being stung by the bees as well. Okay. And someone's yeah. trying to help you get out from being trapped in that hole with the bee's nest. But you say, no, no, I, I just want a few more drops of honey as you're constantly getting stung. Right. If you get the honey, there is a little bit of sweetness there, right? Sensual, yes. sensual world. But you're also getting stung constantly at the same time because of it. But if you get too much drops of the honey, it kind of loses its sweetness as well. So you can't have too right. much of that either. So it's just it's just a really good description, I think, because it's like you you can't really uh, <laughs> the, the the cons of being in this position is outweighs the any any gratification of it like so much. Right. The, and the classic example that I always go to in my mind that which illustrates what you're saying, I think, is you know you want junk food, you want to eat junk food, and you grossly overestimate just how much well-being eating the junk food is going to bring to you. Specifically, you neglect all of the negative feelings that come in the aftermath of eating the junk food, right? The feeling of being bloated, the feeling of regretting eating the junk food because it was unhealthy, right? So you eat the junk food, you have this very transitory experience of pleasure, then that experience of pleasure is followed by unpleasant experiences, right? Of being bloated or regret or whatever. And you tend to, when you make the decision to eat the junk food, you're just thinking about the pleasure that's going to come and you're completely neglecting all of the negative experiences that are going to follow in the wake of that pleasure. So you're making the decision to do this on the basis of a misunderstanding of how much well-being this is going to bring you. So yeah, again, that makes complete sense to me too. And just circling back to the point you're making about nirvana and how existence is the problem because existence just involves kind of disrupting the natural tranquil state of the mind i think a good analogy there is just the analogy of a lake you know a still lake where the still lake is the mind of nirvana and existence is when you throw a pebble into the lake you know or that's what a sensation is arising in consciousness it's a pebble that's causing ripples that's disturbing the tranquility of the lake um so yeah, I, I, I like that. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to this. I think that people do grossly overestimate how much durable well-being sensation pleasures bring them, like sensory pleasures bring them. Um, again, and we, you know, we've kind of gotten lost here in our initial disagreement because now we're agreeing on everything. But again, I think that, I think that all of this is true about the nature of the mind, but again, I don't see any evidence 
for the claim of rebirth, right? I think that, yes, it is true that, again, we overestimate how much durable well-being attaching ourselves to fundamentally transient pleasures will bring us. And that by detaching yourselves from these things, you can achieve a more stable form of well-being. I completely agree with that, right? That's just truths about the human mind and the way that the human mind works. But now if you're going a step further and you're telling me, well, yeah, it's not just that. It's that the mind of nirvana doesn't even need a body to exist, right? It's that you can actually exist when you can continue to exist when you die and you no longer have your body because you don't need those sensory inputs, right? So it's, you're not just claiming that you don't need these sensory inputs to be happy in this life because they bring you a false, uh, they, they bring you a false sense of pleasure, right? That's one claim, right? That you don't need these sensory inputs to be happy in your life. You shouldn't attach to them, right? You should just find a way to detach to them. But it's another claim to say that you can continue to exist without these sensory inputs, right? Not only do you not need them to be happy, but you can actually continue, can continue to exist after death without your body. Oh, that you seems like a claim which I don't see any evidence for. Now, it might be true. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying that I'm agnostic about it. And again, this is where our disagreement comes in back into the picture. Right. But like we just talked about, you don't exist. That's the point. You're not, you don't exist, but you, you now are reality. You know reality by being reality. Nirvana isn't something you attain. It's not something that's far out. It's something that's actually in us. But it's, 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 it's like, it's like, it's like clear, pure water. It's already pure in and of itself, but it's, it's dyed. It's like there's dye in the water and, and, and it's discolored it and, and you can't see it. That dye is really the three poisons of the defilements of greed, hatred, delusion. These are the things that make you crave existence that make you deluded and, and, and ignorant to uh, ultimate reality and that make you constantly grasp at existence, at these changing phenomenons, at these senses. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I just, go ahead. So I, I, I understand what you're saying here. Um, it just seems like such a controversial claim to me to, to just be so confident in asserting that consciousness can exist disembodied like that seems like a claim about the nature of consciousness which just doesn't seem like we can definitively declare to be true at this point given our understanding or lack thereof of the nature of consciousness right like we still consciousness is one still remains one of the most fundamental mysteries uh in life you know from the standpoint of science right we don't understand the nature of consciousness there is the hard problem of consciousness which we can get into. So in the absence of this understanding of what consciousness is, again, I don't see how you can be confident in declaring that, yeah, consciousness can exist after we die and be disembodied. All right, look, two things. One, you can realize that there is something outside of the senses, but this can only be experienced and directly seen and known 
at very high levels. And you're not going to get to those high levels unless you're already putting in the work. So what you're saying is true. When you start out on this path, when you start, when you start out, you don't know. Making that very clear. You don't know. Mm-hmm. But look, what are you going to put your money on here? If, every, if, if everything, if everything is, if you have the materialist outlook and annihilationist view that after death, nothing, that's it. Nothing happens. Everything, every, everything is absurd anyway. Everything, everything is absurd. There, there is, there is no point to any of it. You don't lose either way. Whatever you do in this life, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. None of it at all. Nihilism, it's meaninglessness. If that's where you're putting your money, that is the truth of the situation. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter. You don't lose it anyway. All right? Mm-hmm. So that's if you take that view. Mm-hmm. The annihilist perspective. Right. But if you put your money in the other, if the other, in the other bucket, in the fact that what you do matters, your actions have results, have consequences. You condition the next moment. Which, by the way, you can see in this very life. So this isn't something far out. You don't need to wait till high levels to understand this. But if you're, if you're putting on that view, and, and, and even though you don't know yet, you're going to go in that direction, there's two things. One, what you're doing in this life, what else is there to do in this life than your own emotional well-being your own peace of mind your own happiness i mean everything think about the things people do right like 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 people people go and they they spend their whole life they have this idea that they want to build a castle or something and then they spend their whole life building a castle like like this is everyone's everyone's doing things because they're trying to run from this existential problem this existential crisis we all have in us we fundamentally know everything is so we, so we try to make up things to do to kind of to kind of avoid this existential problem we don't want to face everything why why are we why are we doing all these why are we climbing mount everest you know why are we risking our life because we're trying to find some kind of meaning in something that's absolutely meaningless Everything, everything you do is meaningless. I mean, every, everything in existence. So what else is there to do than in this life? Spend your time getting emotional well-being, getting peace of mind, getting pure happiness, getting wisdom, getting, gaining, gaining a sense of, compl- of contentment in, in, this, in this crazy experience of life. Yeah. And if this is true, it's not good just for this life, but you continue that on to some future other, other life, some future other person. You're, you're going in that direction. If it's not true, you still spent this life <laughs> putting yourself in this state of contentment, in this state of happiness. And if it is, that's it. Well, guess what? You didn't lose and you still spend this life better than, you know, freaking 
spending four, 40 hours, 50 hours a week in a cubicle trying to make all this material well, just in a constant state of distress. Right. In this very life, you have more emotional well-being than somebody who's not walking this path. That's just if you're wrong. If you're right, right. You've, you've created so much uh, merit. So, so You're setting yourself up for such a better – you continue that peace and that happiness onto the future until you get to the final goal. And so it's, it's just absurd to me how it doesn't matter – which view you actually take. But if you don't, you can't lose if you don't put your money on that second option. You you only win no matter what. So this is like, this is like the Buddhist version of Pascal's wager. I don't know if you are familiar with Pascal's wager. I'm not. Yeah. Look up Pascal's wager. It was, it's it's originally uh, put forth as a reason to believe in Christianity. And the idea is like, look, you have two options. Either you can believe, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and believe in God and follow the tenets of Christianity, or you can be an atheist and not believe. But if, again, to go back, I love how you just, you're completely unaware of Pascal's wager, but you just formulated the Buddhist version of it. But but then the idea on the original version is you should, no matter what's true, right, whether Christianity is true or not, you should believe in Christianity because if it is true and you don't believe in Christianity, then you might burn in hell forever. And that's a horrible outcome, right? Now, if it's not true, Christianity is not true. God doesn't exist, but you still believe in Christianity. Then you just live your life and you die and you still get to a lot of good benefits by following the tenets of Christianity, which provides a solid moral basis for living your life. So the idea is no matter what, no matter, regardless of whether Christianity is true, just a, if you're, tr- just a, if you're making a bet, as you'd say, if you're putting your chips into one bucket, you should believe in Christianity because the consequences of potentially not believing are so high that you should just believe from a pr- pragmatically speaking, because you don't want to burn in hell for eternity. Um, but there is no downside either. But there's no downside either. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems with the original formulation of Pascal's wager, as I understand it, is that you can run it for any number of the potentially infinite gods that exist, right? You can run the Pascal's wager for the flying spaghetti monster god. Um, You know, you should believe in the flying spaghetti monster because if you don't, the flying spaghetti monster will condemn you to hell. And if you do, so it seems like kind of arbitrary what god or religion you happen to be running pascal's wager on but uh i want to make another point too so i just wanted to i just wanted to flag that that's interesting that you're presenting a form of a buddhist form of pascal's wager and i understand it and i think it might be more convincing than the christianity form i get it um but you know i mean there we're primarily talking about what's pragmatic right? How you should spend your life pragmatically speaking so as to, so as to produce the greatest amount of well-being. But there's a difference between what's pragmatic and what's true, right? I mean, there are certain people who endorse what are called, called pragmatic theories of truth. You can be a pragmatist about truth. So just put pragmatism about truth aside. Typically, what's pragmatic and what's true come apart, 
right? Something can be pragmatic to believe, right? It could be pragmatic to believe in the tenets of Buddhism, even though they aren't ultimately metaphysically true, right? It could be pragmatic to believe that there's an afterlife because it motivates you to be moral and not to engage in just rank hedonism in this life. Because, you know, because in the absence of believing some kind of God, maybe you fall into a sense of nihilism, right? So that can, you can pragmatically, you can make a pragmatic argument for believing in Buddhism or Christianity without necessarily endorsing the idea that these things are true. Okay. There's that point. So what I wanted to say is, yeah, I might, I think I agree with you in terms of Buddhism being very pragmatic, but I, again, I'm not, I don't necessarily agree with you in terms of Buddhism actually being true. And when I say Buddhism being true, I mean, specifically the afterlife components of Buddhism, again, the karma, the rebirth, the, that stuff. Um, and again, I think to go back to the beginning of your last diatribe that you made, I think that one of the fundamental disagreements between us, and again, this keeps coming up in our conversations, is that Buddhism and you tend to think that you can derive metaphysical truths about reality and about the afterlife based upon phenomenological insights, based upon introspection, right? You said, you said, yeah, no, I understand. Like you said pretty much like Cody, yeah, I get it. You haven't, you haven't gotten far enough on the path yet to have that insight, that meditative insight of nirvana. And, and once you have that insight, you'll understand the truth of rebirth, right? You'll understand the truth of karma once you have that insight, but you haven't had that insight yet. And what I'm saying is, yeah, I haven't had that insight yet, but even if I were to have that insight, right? Even if I got far enough along the path to really experience that at an experiential level, I still don't think that I would be able to justifiably conclude from that insight that all these metaphysical conclusions that you want to draw about the afterlife and about rebirth and so on and so forth. Just because I think, again, phenomenological insights don't necessarily correlate with metaphysical truths, right? And the example that I keep going back to here is the example of profound phenomenological experiences that people will have on psychedelic drugs right? Someone can drop acid or take shrooms and have extremely profound experiences, which seem to be tracking truths about the underlying nature of reality, right? They seem to be talking to some elf in a different dimension, or they seem to be talking to God. And in the aftermath of that experience, that psychedelic experience, you know, I mean, they might think like, uh, they might come away with new beliefs about the world, or they might realize, oh yeah, that was just kind of like, you know, I wasn't actually talking to God. I just thought I was talking to God, right? So it seems like we can have extremely profound experiences which seem to be tracking truths about reality, but which actually don't track truths about reality, right? And you don't even need to go to psychedelic experiences. This is just illustrated via the fact that hallucination is a real thing, right? You can have hallucinations about what seems to be real, but which actually isn't real. So again, my question is, for people who get far enough on the path to have these deep meditative experiences which seem to confirm the truths of afterlife and karma. How do you know that those experiences are actually reliably tracking truth? How do you know that those experiences aren't on par with a hallucination or with a 
profound psychedelic experience. That I think is the fundamental disagreement between us. Whether you think again, that you can derive metaphysical truths about reality and the afterlife based upon profound meditative experiences. You're never going to get to truth through thought. So any thinking about what insight you're going to get to in the future, I think the insight's going to be like this. I think the insight's going to be like that. I think reality in the future is going to be like this. I think the reality in the future is going to be like that. That's all delusion, right? So, so if you're if you're thinking about oh, if I get here, I still don't think that's going to be true. That's all in the nature of thought. You have about eighty thousand thoughts a day. Almost all of them are wrong. So <laughs> that's true. None of it's anything. So you're never going to get to truth through thought ever. You get to truth by going beyond all that. And we talked about this the difference between a psychedelic experience and a meditative insight. <clears throat> In a psychedelic experience, that's all that's what it is. It's an experience. It's something that exists. It's something mm-hmm. that's permanent. It's something that may widen your sense of consciousness to some degree, but it's all fundamentally a delusion because it's coloring the aggregates of memory, of thought, of perception, of your emotions. It's coloring all of reality. So you're not seeing things clearly. Mm -hmm. You're seeing things in a distorted way. Right. So that's why you're never going to get, you're never going to awaken. You're never going to get to truth through psychedelics because it's a colored experience. It, it may give you an idea of something outside of your ordinary perception that you didn't know existed and may put you on a path to finding truth, but it's never going to be truth in and of itself. When you, when you do a period of intensive meditation practice, such as a silent retreat, or maybe you're staying in seclusion in a monastery, whatever, what you're doing is you're seeing reality clearer and clearer in greater depth over a period of time. So you're seeing reality as it is. And as time rolls on, you start developing concentration. So your 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 consciousness, your your uh your sense of attention and, and seeing is getting more subtle, more subtle, and more subtle. You're starting to perceive things in a much more subtle way. In a, in a way, you're seeing phenomena happen in ways that you've never seen it before because you've been so distracted, you've been so unconcentrated, you've been at such a gross level of consciousness. But as that level starts getting more subtle, you start seeing reality more clearly. You start seeing reality change quicker. It starts mm-hmm. to cause an effect, you know? I remember one time on uh, my second retreat, I was walking down to the dining hall, and I remember I was seeing uh, – I remember, or I remember having a thought in my head, and it was a negative thought. And the second that thought came, I immediately saw the feeling, that thought conditioned the negative feeling, you know? Or, or I would see something that I thought was uh, – attractive and then i would see immediately how that would lead to that and that would lead to another thought and it right you can really see 
how one thing conditions the other and you're seeing it all pass away very, very quickly, very, very quickly. It doesn't last at all. Mm-hmm. Normally we're, everything seems kind of permanent. People don't really understand impermanence to a very moment to moment degree because uh, we're just, that's, we're just so far away from the subtle levels of reality. When you're on a retreat, you're getting closer there. You're starting, you're starting to see the, the nature of things and the truth of things much more clearly, much more clearly, much more clearly. So can, can I just, I would just say that again, maybe this is, we're just playing different language games. So this is just a semantic barrier here, but I would say that I would agree with you. You're gaining a clearer and clearer insight into the nature of your mind, but not necessarily clearer, clearer insight into the nature of reality. Well, hold on. So, <clears throat> and but again, I know you have a, that particular conception of reality that we talked about. Well, the point is, is you're now, you're now farther away from delusion than you were previously. Okay. So you're going in the right direction thus far. And here's the thing. Just a disclaimer. I haven't experienced ultimate reality. All right. So everything I'm saying is just based off my, a lot of, uh, understanding off of, um, experiences from others and you know obviously my own experiences uh in meditation and retreat which has been profound but not to this ultimate level yet so just throwing this out here um but so in the course of things as things get more subtle and more subtle and more subtle and you start seeing reality more clearly and more clearly and more clearly you really start to see how the nature of things work and you can get to a point here, and this is the point that you were talking about earlier, where you get so subtle that there's a moment of what's called cessation. Mm. And by cessation, I mean cessation of mind, matter, of the external world. It's it's like it's like a a, a lapse in consciousness. Mm-hmm. And then there's a sort of reboot moment. And there's a fruition moment of bliss. And that is a very, what you, what you just did at that point is uh, the first stage of awakening in the Buddhist concept called a uh, sotopana or stream enterer, stream winner. And what you just did was you experienced Nibbana, the cessation of mind and matter and reality. And at that point, that's the point where, um, you you no longer three things basically happen um there's a 10 fetter model so being all beings are bound to 10 fetters to existence when you hit the stream enterer which is that moment i just talked about where you get so subtle you witness that you eliminate three fetters one is personality view so at that point you realize you're not the body so you you now you now have eliminated any notion that you are your body, which is obviously a huge release of suffering, right? Um, you've you've gotten rid of the idea that rites or rituals or some kind of ceremony will get you to uh, liberation. And three is skeptical doubt about the Dharma, the truth, the teachings, the path, the four noble truths. Why? 
Why has doubt been eliminated at that moment? Because you you just witnessed Nibbana. You just witnessed the cessation of suffering, which you just witnessed something beyond mind and matter. And again, you got there by seeing things more clearly, more clearly, more subtle, more subtle. And then this huge, this huge kind of everything locked into place moment. And that's that's really the, that's the moment where you go from an ordinary worldling to a noble a noble one. Uh, you've 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 entered the class of uh, a noble disciple of enlightened being, and uh, you're, you're <laughs> you are permanently changed. You are permanently changed. There is no going back. You're destined for full enlightenment. Um, no matter what, uh, you're you, basically your inner pull is too uh enlightenment than it is to the sensual world now even though you still have greed you still have hatred you still have all that you still can get caught up in the world and all that there's you're, you're fundamentally different than other beings even though you may seem fine you can have a conversation with somebody and everything seems fine your your way of viewing the world is is is, is fundamentally different and, and it's 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 uh and it's a moment that comes from great clarity and great understanding and mm-hmm. direct experience with Nibbana. And uh, until you get to that moment, um, you are you are bound to all the suffering. You you are you are not free in any sense. And and you you know you could talk about things and have ideas about things, but you're never really going to know the truth because you haven't experienced it directly. And when you get to that moment, that's when you have experienced it directly. And a lot of these questions that we're talking about right now, um, they cease because it's 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 beyond the realm of questioning. Um, you've you've gone you've gone beyond that. You've gone to a depth that's 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 uh, uh, you've transcended that kind of surface level of of thinking and and you've seen directly. So doubt is no longer a issue for you because um, it has been known and seen and experienced. So I get it. I don't think that you're going to convert me today, you know, but look, you might be right, right? Just hold on, hear me out. You might be right. It might be, okay, when you have this experience in Nirvana, then you've really seen the truth, you know, you've seen the light. And now since you've seen the light, all doubt is eliminated. And now you're going to spend the rest of your days just pursuing that light. But I don't know how to, so maybe that's correct, but I don't know how to distinguish what you're saying from the person who's really into Christianity and who's seen the light of Jesus. And they tell me like, look, Cody says the Christian, I know you're asking all these questions about Jesus and whether Jesus is our Lord and Savior, but once you just open yourself up to Jesus, once you just open yourself up to Jesus, then all of these doubts that you're having will just completely wash away, right? You just need to take a leap of faith. But until you take that leap of faith, until you open yourself up to Jesus, you're not going to see that what I'm saying is true. Now, presumably, I think you'd agree with me that that person who's, who's, telling you that, you know, Jesus is the son of God and all of this, that they're wrong, right? They're wrong. Like they just ultimately are taking this kind of principled leap of faith to derive 
conclusions about the nature of reality, which aren't in the afterlife, which aren't even justice justified. And I'm, my problem is that from where I sit, I don't know how to, how to distinguish that person, the person who's trying to convert me into Christianity and accept the word of Jesus Christ from the Buddhist who's telling me that once I experience Nirvana, then I'll see the light and I'll change my behavior accordingly. Right. It seems like in both cases, in both cases, you have someone that's telling me that, yeah, all of these doubts that you're having will just wash away once you have the requisite experience. But then again, that gets back to my point about how I don't think that you can use experience, no matter how profound, no matter how seemingly true, as a basis to necessarily make these conclusions about the afterlife. Well, Nibbana is actually something that's beyond experience. So that's why you're, you're actually, you've transcended experience itself. But look, there are Christian mystics out there, you know, but the point is, is on the path to that, again, that, that's kind of, that moment is kind of a moment where everything locks into place, but on the journey to that path moment, you, you have, you, you, you get all these, uh, insights and truths and wisdom is being, uh, is being arisen along the way. And as that's happening, your your uh, your understanding on how this is a path that's leading to freedom, you start you're suffering less and less as you continue going on. You start seeing the truth of things more and more easily and true. So even before this moment, like you're already building more conviction into this, and it's really conviction, not belief, because belief is just believing without kind of changing any, uh, any of your attitude or anything. Conviction is more like, like you're, you're fundamentally changing certain actions and speech based off, off this. And, and as you do that, you start seeing the rewards of it along the way. So you don't need to wait till that moment. Like you're, you're, you're chipping away at doubt all the way, all the way. And like, you start seeing how your life is getting better. You start seeing how, more and more of what you've either read or, you know, and what you're experiencing is, is leading to the right direction. And it's, and it's, and it's, so it's not something you have to wait until that moment for that moment kind of just locks everything into place. You know, it takes away, uh, you know, the little, the little bit of, uh, uncertainty that's still left there. And it's kind of like almost the reward for the work you've been putting in. Again, Buddhism isn't telling you just to believe and that's it. It's telling you, no, like put in the work, you know, you got to start off with right view. You got to start out with some understanding to even take this up, but take this up, put in the work, put in the causes and you're going to see the results. Mm -hmm. You start seeing the results. That's going to build into more confidence into it. And then you're going to put in more causes and then you're going to get more results. And now you're going in the right direction and eventually you're going to get to a place where you're locked in. And so that's what Buddhism is telling you to do. It's just telling you, look, do you want a better life or not? Here, happiness is available. Help yourself. And, you know, it, it, that's what it's doing. And, and you'll, you'll, you eventually get to the point. But if you wait until you try to figure out all the answers, 
you're never going to get there because you're in you're in a realm that needs to be transcended in order to see the truth. You're never going to know truth by looking at things scientifically, externally, or thinking about it or reading about it. You got to transcend all that. Every view you have, you have to let go of. Yeah, the, I mean, there's a school in philosophy that's just called phenomenology. It, one of the leading proponents of phenomenology is Edmund Husserl. I think that's how you pronounce it. And he pretty much, in, in investigating the nature of mind and reality, he took a kind of Buddhist approach because he's just saying like, okay, hold on, let's just, let's have the starting point of philosophy just be investigation into the nature of subjective first-person experience. And let's bracket all other metaphysical assumptions that we have about the world, right? Everything that you think you know about science or the nature of reality, just put aside and let's just start at experience, you know, and try to describe it and understand its structure and use that as our jumping off point to build a worldview. That's kind of the, the program of phenomenology in a nutshell. Um, and, and, you know, sounds very closely tied to Buddhism. I think that's interesting. So yeah, maybe I just need to walk the path, I guess, a little further, you know, again, our fundamental difference here has to do with epistemology and what fundamental epistemological principles we're endorsing. And you're ascribing a high degree of epistemological value to meditative experience, right? You think that you can use meditative experience as a tool to understand reality and the afterlife. And I'm agnostic on that still. And you're saying that I just need to walk the path further to have that view of epistemology changed within me you you have to understand you don't have to eliminate doubt to walk the path doubt's going to be there until that moment right so doubt's going to be there that's okay doubt is actually one of the five hindrances right there's restlessness um ill will desire skeptical doubt and uh sleepiness heaviness so these are the five things in the way so doubt's one of the hindrances it's there the whole time the problem is you can't let it overtake you because then you, because then you're frozen. Then you're not moving forward. You're not, you know, so it paralyzes you. So it's okay that doubt's there. I'm not telling you to get rid of doubt. I'm just telling you to start going in this direction and start seeing benefits to your life. You know, Buddhism is telling you, look, there's an arrow in you. There is an arrow in you. Mm-hmm. The doctor who's, you could say the Buddha is there and telling you, look, I can get the arrow out. And you're saying No. Don't take the arrow out. I want to know who made this arrow. Who shot me with this arrow? What does he look like? How did he make the arrow? Before I want, I want to know that before you pull it out. And the Buddha's like, you don't have time to know all this. We need to take the arrow out now. You need to start working on getting that arrow out now. And that's what we need to be focusing on. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe we can end with this and this is kind of a more I'll end on a more charitable note towards Buddhism. I do think that this is, you know, I was kind of unfavorably comparing Buddhism to Christianity a second ago, but I do think that Buddhism is different and better in in some respects than other religions in that it's not telling you that you have to believe anything or dogmatically accept any doctrines at the door, you know, like for Christianity, you have to just accept Jesus Christ as your Lord Savior. You know, so you, there's a dogmatism that's in play. It seems like right as you're starting your journey into Christianity, whereas the Buddhist is saying, I'm not telling you to believe anything. 
I'm not telling you to get rid of doubt, right? I'm just telling you to walk the path and see for yourself. Yes. Right. So I, I think that Buddhism is different than other religions in that way. And I respect it be, because it's different in that way, because it's not telling you that you have to accept any doctrines at the door. Um, so yeah, I guess I just need to keep walking the path and we'll see what happens.